Hello, and welcome to Diversity Matters, where we explore all things diversity, equity, and inclusion related. I'm your host, Oscar Holmes IV, and I'm so excited to welcome an amazing scholar and consultant, Dr. Ella Washington, to the guest chair today. As we talk more about how organizations can do DEI work effectively, which is the topic of her new book, The Necessary Journey. Ella has global consulting experience in the human capital space, which has allowed her to impact clients across a myriad of industries, including financial services, sports and entertainment, oil and gas, higher education, and the government. She is a proud alum of Spelman College and earned her PhD in 2014 at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. Currently, she is a professor of practice at Georgetown University's McDonald School of Business and the founder and CEO of Elevate Solutions. Dr. Washington, welcome to Diversity Matters. Hello, hello, Oscar. Hello, everyone. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsors. I believe that the PSU project is important to myself and other students for a plethora of reasons. I've often struggled in, in certain organizations where I was tolerated but not celebrated. And I met so many amazing people, successful people, a Native American, Latino, African American, and they were all interested in the same thing. The PhD project provides kind of like a resource, a platform for us to collectively come together on this journey. That's one of the reasons I love the PhD project is because of the consistent support they, they give to all of us. Long-time listeners of Diversity Matters can easily pick up a pattern in my guests and their affiliation with the PhD project. And today is no exception. Dr. Washington was just, I think, two years behind me in our respective PhD programs. So we basically grew up in this academic family all together. I can say without a doubt that it has truly been an honor to see you spread your wings. And just like our last episode's guest, Dr. Anthony Hood, you blazed your own trail and path, and you just had this remarkable mix of corporate, consultant, and academic experience. So this unique experience has led to you writing this phenomenal book, and I'm excited to talk to you today about it. So Ella, let's get started. Fantastic. You know, when you were reading my bio, I was thinking that's the one thing that was missing was the PhD project, but you brought it on around. As you know, the PhD project definitely has changed my life. So I'm happy to be in community with you and all our other PhD Project family. Amen, amen. We love the PhD Project and shout out to the PhD Project for sponsoring this episode. In academia, you know, the currency a lot of times is articles and you, again, blazed your own path. But can you give our listeners some idea of why did you decide to write The Necessary Journey? What's interesting in my introduction of the book and my editor said, you got to tell more of your story. I'm like, this is not about me. This is about companies and diversity, equity, inclusion. But as I started to reflect on my own story that I share in the introduction of the book, to your point about blazing my own trail, it was actually really difficult for me at the beginning of my career to go against the grain and go into industry instead of academia. So much so that I was told directly when I was in my PhD program, that I shouldn't tell anybody that I want to be a consultant. It was like a bad word. And to start there from a place where I didn't feel comfortable being around my academic colleagues as much, and that was all self-imposed. 
No one told me not to come to the conferences and stuff, but I just felt like, where is my place, right? And to see now that our world has shifted in the sense that research and academia do talk more to each other, that's always been my professional goal. And so getting back to why I wrote the book, it was really important for me to have a resource for leaders, for employees, even for other academics doing this work that marries what we know from a research lens to the real experiences within organization. And the book really brought home my two loves of research and practice. And so I wrote the book to bring that to light. And more specifically, I had a lot of chief human resource officers and CEOs asking me, okay, we understand that DEI is a journey. That's a concept that has been out in the world for quite some time. I didn't make that one up. But what was interesting is, especially in the summer of 2020, these leaders kept asking me, okay, we know it's a journey, but really, where are we on the journey? And then how do we compare to other people? And those are two fundamental, lovely questions. But when I got them 30 and 50 plus times over the course of summer 2020, I realized there was something missing from this concept of DEI as a journey. And so I wrote the book to demystify that notion, to really help people understand beyond just definitions, what is DEIJB all about and how does it actually show up in companies? We know that people respond to stories much better than respond to facts and figures and all that. That stuff is good, but people remember the stories. And so I wanted to humanize this concept of DEI for people. Good. And one of the things you threw in there for our listeners, most of them will probably know the J and the B, but just in case they don't, they'd be like, Oscar, what was that she said? So why don't you explain the J and the B for people who may not be as savvy? Yeah, absolutely. So the J is for justice and the B is for belonging. And in my book introduction, again, I talk about this alphabet soup that it's become our work. And it's not a bad thing at all. It's a shifting of times. In my book, I talk about how diversity management was what it was called initially after affirmative action. But when it really became in business schools and psychology programs and in corporations, it was diversity management for the first 15, 20 years. Then it became diversity and inclusion. And then slowly but surely, it's become diversity, equity, and inclusion. And some organizations have also added justice and belonging and other types of concepts with it. I think all of that is great, especially if it underlines action. What I don't advocate for is adding belonging, justice, or even equity into your function if you're not going to have a different course, if you're not going to have a, some, an additional action, additional work that is along those lines. Because what many companies do, they just follow the wave and, you know, they add equity to their titles. But when I ask them, what does equity mean to your organization? They can't tell me. Or what are you doing differently this year than you were doing last year when equity was not a part of the function? And they can't tell me. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. And so one of the things that you mentioned was companies, and not just companies, just say organizations in general, they want to know, where do I stand in relation to other people, that social comparison process? And so your book, I think, does an excellent job to give people a roadmap in terms of what you call the DEI maturity model. You introduce this in your book, and it can identify where organizations may fall along this journey, this whole metaphor of a journey is uh, something that I also like as well. Just a side, side part, a lot of times people would say, you know, this work is a marathon, it's not a sprint. 
And then for me, I always say, hold on, hold on. Let's change that metaphor, right? It's not a marathon because the marathon eventually ends after the 26, you know, point two miles. This work never ends. And so I do like the metaphor of the journey a lot better because the journey basically means like there's no end to this journey. You're going to constantly evolve. Or as, as our forever first lady, Michelle Obama says, you're always becoming, right? Quick pause on that for a second. I think that is probably the hardest thing. And I think that's what we're seeing companies have an actual reaction to in this year, right? If you've been following the news on what's happening in the DEI industry, because people say, okay, we get it's a journey. We get that it's never over. But then they get frustrated when it's been three years and they've been doing stuff and maybe it's good stuff, but they're not seeing the overhaul that they expected. This journey is never going to be, you know, an overnight sensation. Even three years is not enough time to see structural change and systemic change in the way that we need to see it. And so I think we can't understate the power of that metaphor journey and getting people to really understand what that means, because they say they do, but their actions tend to indicate otherwise. I love that. And so to help our listeners out a little bit more, can you explain the maturity model and those five stages that you've seen your organizations that you work with and many others go through? Absolutely. So as we start to think about how do we understand where we are in terms of our DEI journey, the first stage is awareness. And awareness is all about understanding who you are as a company, what you stand for, and how DEI is connected to your organization. This is not just about having definitions of DEI. It's really about understanding what is DEI to us and how does it show up in our mission and our values and the work that we do every day. And theoretically, this awareness stage happens when you're formulating the organization at the very beginning. But we also know that for many organizations, they've had to go back into to this awareness stage because they weren't thinking about that at the inception of the organization. The second stage is compliance. This is when the focus is on maintaining laws and precedents like the EEOC laws or other legal standards in order to essentially not fall out of legal compliance and not to get sued. For many organizations, it really is we do DEI because we have to, as opposed to thinking about it in terms of how it makes our business better. And I would even say some companies have fallen into this compliance effort even in the last three years as a function of maybe not just legal compliance, but social compliance. And so where we want to see organizations is move beyond the compliance stage and think about DEI in connection to how it fits into the organization's goals and move forward strategy. Maybe they're thinking about DI and how it is connected to their customers or specific business outcomes. And in this tactical third stage of the maturity model, you see a lot of programs and events. It's great for awareness. And you see a lot of efforts maybe in different pockets of the organization. Maybe the marketing team is knocking it out the park in terms of DEI. And those things are really great. But where the tactical stage runs against some roadblocks is that it's often not integrated throughout the whole organization. And that's where we want to see companies move to that fourth stage of integration. And that's where organizations can really say that DEI is a part of everything that we do. And how do they say that? Well, they can say that by looking across their entire sphere of influence. And so in my book, I have examples in each chapter of that organization's sphere of influence internally from their employees 
and the leaders within the organization, to their board of directors, to externally, their customers, to their peer organizations, to the communities that they serve and are, that reside in. And so when companies can really look across their entire sphere of influence and say that DEI is a part of everything that we do, we consider them an integrated state. Now, the fifth, but as I say, not final stage is sustainability. And so DEI efforts must be sustainable and remain strong over time through organizational change, through economic change. We want to see organizations still be able to show up strong in terms of those DEI efforts over time. And it takes time to see if an organization is at that sustainable stage, right? It can't just be they've had one or two years where they've been really strong. You know, as I said, it's the fifth but not final stage because there's always an evolution. And the DEI journey does not end. We want to see companies always going back to recalibrate, to understand how their people are shifting and changing, how the world is shifting and changing, what they should be paying attention to today that maybe they weren't five and 10 years ago. And so though there are five stages of the maturity, we do want to see a continuous evolution. I love that. I love that. And leaders, please, please take note of that. Sustainable is great. We want you to be there, but it doesn't mean it ends there because our world is constantly changing. And so the journey continues. So first of all, I'm just curious in terms of it's great for a company to be listed as being at the sustainable stage. But in your experience, have you had companies not want to be classified earlier on in that stage process? If they're just at the compliance awareness stage, did you face any hesitations from companies from being basically called in? I won't say called out. I'll just say called in. You know, it's interesting. When I talk about the integrated stage, I had a client, a long-time client, actually, and they were committed to doing the work. But what's interesting is they said, well, we want to be at the integrated stage, but we can't necessarily say DEI is part of everything that we do. I think that was a really interesting approach. They said, well, DEI is important. But it's not part of everything that we do. And what they were really saying is that we don't want it to be the focus in front of other business priorities, which I think is is reasonable. But I think that breaks down the challenge that they still weren't seeing DEI as part of integrated into their business. They were still seeing it as a separate thing. So they're saying, you know, we don't see it as part of everything that we do. You should. And I stand by that. You should be able to look at any function in your organization and be able to see diversity of people and diversity of thought. You should be able to see equity in how it's approached and who is impacted. And you should see inclusion, right, in all the ways that are relevant to that area of the business. And so I certainly have had some pushback, but I think it's mindset as opposed to inability to do the work. I think they could do the work, but their mindset was still like DEI is this extra thing. And that's what we want organizations to shift away from. Got you. I love that you brought up diversity of thought because you talk about that in your book as well. And you and I both had the same reaction to diversity of thought. One of your profiles in your book, Fawn Weaver's Uncle Nearest, that brought up in your book about her wanting diversity of thought. And so can you share your thoughts about how organizations should approach this whole idea of, oh, yeah, we care about diversity of thought. We have that conversation. Yeah. So, you know, this is a hot topic. And some folks, when they first see the title of that chapter on diversity of thought, they're like, wait, she had me until diversity of thought, right? I want to be very clear. Diversity of thought does not replace demographic diversity. It should be an additional layer. Demographic diversity is foundational. 
And that should always be a continued goal until you reach those representation goals that you are desiring at every level. You can't ignore diversity of demographic background. However, you want to also layer in diversity of thought on top of demographic diversity because you can't have situations where everyone is from the same school or everyone is from the same part of the country. And there is this notion that we all have to kind of agree and not raise our own individual experiences or thought. You don't want to have an environment where people look demographically different, but they're all just shaking their heads yes at the same thing. You want to have an environment that cultivate a disagreement in a healthy way. You want to have an environment where consensus is just not the norm. And one of the things that I really like about Fawn Weaver's approach at Uncle Nearest is that she doesn't want everybody in the room to just agree. She wants there to be discourse and dialogue and disagreement when necessary in order to get the best results for the business. And so I caution anyone that is using diversity of thought as a replacement or substitute for demographic diversity. That is not what is meant by diversity of thought by myself. And it cannot be a scapegoat, but it is an important consideration when you have environments where you say, maybe we have demographic diversity, but we're not getting the power of that diversity. Are you welcoming diversity of thought? And it's something that has to be culturally ingrained. It's not something that just happens because you have demographic diversity in a room. That's all the research about Diversity without inclusion doesn't stick. It doesn't have that impact. It's because you have to welcome people sharing those diverse perspectives, not just assuming everyone should just agree. And if I may, I like to add a caveat to that as well to organizational leaders when I talk with them, that in addition to the demographic representation, it's also important that that representation is aligned attitudinally and the values that are important for the organizations because We're not going to call any specific names, but we know so many people who may look like the people who you want in a row, but they don't share the values to uplift those people because organizations can be famous for just trying to put faces in a room and they know that the values are misaligned for the communities that those people come from. And so I always like to add that caveat with the demographic representation as well. I love that. And so Anthony was on our last week's episode talking about corporate initiatives at First Horizon. I like timed it perfectly so you can be back to back because you have worked with over like 300 organizations. So you have seen like a broad uh, spectrum of organizations. So can you talk about some of the common pitfalls you witness organizations have engaged in and some advice of how they can avoid some of those pitfalls? Absolutely. Pitfalls is one of the three pillars of my book. When people ask me, what are the things that every organization should be thinking about? I talk about purpose, pitfalls, and progress. And honing in on those pitfalls, you know, the first one is to understand that this is not an overnight sensation. A lot of organizations are wanting to see change quickly, which is the notion of being in a corporate environment. You want change quickly because you see it quickly in other things. We have to understand that cultural change takes time. And DEI work is all about cultural change. The second pitfall is holding that mirror up to yourself as an organization and as individual leader, quite frankly to say what's not working, right? So once you establish a purpose of why you're doing this work and what you're trying to accomplish, you got to be honest about, well, we say we want diversity at every rank. Well, what's holding us back? Is our process for promotion a bit biased? Is it as structured as it should be? And that's hard for people to hold the mirror up and say, maybe we haven't done this perfectly, or maybe we've had some 
straight up missteps and mistakes that we've made. And that's really important. You can't get past it if you can't own it and, and call it out and find ways to change. I think the third pitfall would really be not having ownership of doing this work. Everyone loves a good DEI strategy or a roadmap. Everyone doesn't love to understand how you're going to hold people at every level accountable. Because whether or not your organization has a chief diversity officer, whether or not your organization has external consultants that they use for DEI, DEI has to be a part of everyone's responsibility. Every single employee from the front lines to the top of the C-suite should know how they play a role in furthering and advancing the DEI strategy of the organization. And that's one thing, especially with managers, I don't see often enough managers really understanding how they play a role, how their everyday efforts of inclusion and fostering diversity of thought on their teams, for example, has a impact in the larger scheme of the organization. And then the final pitfall that comes to mind is the proliferation of programs. So programs are great, but DEI programs are not a DEI strategy. They should be a part of your strategy, but you can celebrate Black History Month, Women's History Month, Pride Month, Hispanic Awareness Month. You can do all that, Disability Awareness Month. That is not your DEI strategy. Those are great programs and should be implemented, but you have to have a strategy that goes beyond just a proliferation of programs. I love that. And so one of the things that was very enlightening to me as a consultant who does this work as well, and I'm sure with you, in 2020, when the pandemic happened, we saw a lot of things clear up, right? Like I've had clients who had to pull out of certain engagements. In your book, you, I think you mentioned a statistic that there was a decline in DEI-related jobs, like by 60%, which was like twice the rate of overall job declines. And so in June 2020, Basically, they had a 50% surge and, you know, we call that the George Floyd effect that happened. And so what is your take if you care to elaborate a bit more on how you experience this pandemic effect and then, you know, stuff drying up and then all of a sudden everybody wanted you. So it, at least to me, it was like the excuse the company gave was like, oh my God, we have a pandemic. So everyone knew like money was tight, like things was drying up everywhere. But a couple of months later, it's like, what does that, where all this money come from then, right? And to be clear, my listeners, I'm not just saying companies are throwing that much money because typically it's a very, very small percentage of money that they actually allocate to DEIs. I don't want to put out the signal that it was like so much money that they were throwing at DEI efforts. But I just found it curious. That was the excuse. And a lot of people was kind of like letting them off on the excuse that they tied or tight, they didn't have money. But a couple months later, they were, same people were knocking and they found this money. So I don't know if you had that same experience as I had on and other consultants, but I'm interested to hear your thoughts about that. You know, it was a, a curious and sobering experience, I think. I've written a lot about this on LinkedIn as a cautionary tale of what happened in 2020 because we're very much seeing a similar pattern in 2023. And those of us like myself and yourself who have been doing this work our whole careers, we were not surprised. We knew there was going to be a surge and then we knew that company was going to backpedal. So we're not surprised, but it is sobering to see the numbers. And it's been a tough thing to grapple with, even though I knew it was coming. I think it all comes to lack of real commitment. I think that it comes down to organizations also, as I've said before, thinking that progress is going to be overnight and that if they just throw money at these efforts, but don't support it 
with infrastructure, don't support it with accountability internally beyond one person role, like a chief diversity officer, that it's not going to happen. And it certainly is not going to happen overnight. And so it's been challenging to see this wave and the ebbs and the flow of commitment. And I'm saying commitment with air quotes, because like we said, you know, 2020, it's not real commitment if your first roles to go are your DEI roles. And we've seen that again happening in 2023. And so what I'm interested to see, which are the companies that'll be still standing, maybe at the end of this year, they still have strong resources and support for DEI. Because everyone else, I'd say, we thought you were performative and now we know for sure and your efforts were performative. But what is the most frustrating part of all of that is not the money that external consultants like myself or yourself will get or not get. It's the fact that you still have people of color, you still have people of other marginalized identity groups working in these organizations. So they're not going to feel more included because their diversity efforts have now been slashed again. They're going to feel less included, but they need jobs like everyone else, right? And so I do worry about the folks that we're working so hard for. I worry about their experiences in these workplaces that are consistently, time and time again, showing a lack of real commitment. I mean, I remember in 2020, I was doing focus groups with the organization, and there are people in there that were brought to tears talking about how they have to put on a mask to come to work, how they don't feel seen, they don't feel valued. They feel like they have to downplay their identity in one way or another. And those are very real experiences, though, right? You don't get that from the data when you're seeing how much diversity is costing organizations or they're not spending or how many chief diversity officers are leaving. You don't feel that emotional and visceral side of the impact of not having the support for the works. You know, one of the things that you mentioned in the book that I think you just shared your thoughts about was organizations should sacrifice more than money. And I think you just explained why it is so important for organizations to sacrifice more than just money. And it's really at the foundation of a lot of the work that I do myself, because at the end of the day, I really feel like we need to make organizations, workplaces better for people. And if we do this, we also know that we're going to make society better for people. The people who we are educating in these business schools are going out and they're leaders in many thousands of organizations around the world. And they are making decisions on behalf of a lot of people. And so a lot of people are dependent on them. The little bit that I think that we do in front of the classroom or with our scholarship or with our scholar activism and any of the, like, the public recordings that we do, I think it's really important work. And so I think you answered my question with your last response about why organizations should sacrifice more than money. And the thing about it is, you need money to get things done, obviously. But one question I would ask the senior leadership team is, how much time have you personally sacrificed to elevate your learning on diversity or inclusion, to have a conversation or to attend a training or to sponsor an event and come to the event and speak or even just be an active participant? Because one of the chapters in my book, I were healthy, were coming in, they said, well, we can't give millions of dollars. And that's a very real thing. But, you know, what they said, we can give time or we can be thoughtful about our new initiatives and how they're impacting our employees, et cetera. And so I challenge organizations that are having budget constraints 
to be more creative, right? Don't give up because you have budget constraints. We know those are real. That doesn't mean that you can't foster more belonging in your company. That doesn't mean you can't make sure you're valuing the diversity that you have. Maybe you're not hiring this year. Okay, we get that. But how are you making sure that people from diverse backgrounds are feeling valued that are already within your organization? How are you setting up the pipeline for the future when you are hiring again? Because we know that will happen, right? There will be an economic upturn and people will be hiring again. And so there's so much that I think organizations can do, even in these challenging economic times, that if they're not doing anything, again, to me, it just is evidence that it's an excuse. I want to go back to a point that you made earlier, too, about accountability. And I know this question, I get this question a lot. And I'm sure it comes up for others a lot as well. So how does a company know when it's the right time to get a chief diversity officer, right? So you highlighted Slack in your book, and it seemed like they were grappling with that question as well. And so is there any advice that you can give companies if they are grappling with those types of questions of when they know they perhaps should formalize this role? I think in the best case scenario, you would have the role be formalized so that there is a clear line of accountability. I think Slack did a great job of making sure that it was everyone's responsibility. I still think companies should do that, even if you have a chief diversity officer, because we know one person can't do all by themselves. And the data is very clear that the largest teams on average are usually three people. So we're not even talking about a ton of people for most companies. And most companies don't even have a team of three. Most companies have maybe one person or no people to support the chief diversity officer. And so based on what we've learned in the past three years, especially about what the chief diversity officer role needs, I would say if your senior leadership team, especially your CEO, is of support of having a formalized role, meaning that person would either report to them or at least have a dotted line of reporting and visibility to them, that's one indication. A second indication is, are you willing to commit the resources to giving that person a support team? As I just mentioned, they can't do it on their own. And it's really important that they don't feel like they have to. If you're really committed and you really want to formalize this role, don't just put the person in with no resources. And the third thing is, are you willing to position that person internally as the leader that they are? So a lot of people were given the chief diversity officer title, but they didn't really have the power and influence and the structure behind the role to actually get things done. They need to be someone in the organization that can be a mover and shaker, that can shake things up. If you don't have those elements in place, I don't think you need to just hire someone because that can actually set your organization back. If the person doesn't do well because they're not set up for success, they don't have visibility with the senior team. If they don't even know what their goals are, you bring this person in and just expect them to work magic. and You don't have a strategic plan that they're working towards. It really can lead employees to say, well, they hired this person, but the person's not doing anything. And so I think organizations should be very thoughtful. They also should be committed to this role for a significant amount of time. I mean, I find it real curious that many organizations hired their first chief diversity officer in 2020, and now that role is no longer there. It's been three years. What other senior leadership role do you see that is only a two to three year horizon and then the company does away with it? That does not signal commitment, in my opinion. I'd love to know what you tell your students and your clients around When is it time to hire a CDO? I say, similar to you, the time to hire them is if it's really well thought out and they truly can 
because it's all about forecasting. So they have built into the budget the resources that are necessary. And so I tell them that perfection is never the goal, right? Like you're never going to be perfectly resourced, right? You're never, you're never going to have everything in place. However, do you have enough resources, again, that the person is not put into a situation in which they are destined to fail? The other point that I tell them that I think is really important for our listeners and just people in general to know, particularly organizational leaders, is this is a chief level executive or even if you don't put it at a chief level, it's just an executive. Let's say it's an executive and you have to make space for executives to fail. And that's the thing that I see that is totally different from other executive roles, chief roles and the CDO. People expect them to be so perfect. And if something doesn't work, they say, see, we did that. And they could just throw up their hands. But come on now, like your chief human resource officer failed the company and get fired. CFOs get fired. You know, CIOs get fired. CEOs get fired. So to expect an executive to walk into a role and not have mishaps and not make mistakes, and sometimes they should get fired for some things, right? That should not be the excuse for you to just, again, do away with DEI initiatives and strategies. And that is something that I see far too often that happens to CDO, people who are in CDO roles, that is not the same with that counterpart. Black people know CFOs get fired. You know, it's like, okay, you're not going to do away with a position and you get another person. And so that's another thing that I add when I talk to them. And I love that because some of the companies I most admire are the ones that are willing to experiment and say, we don't know if this will work, but we're willing to try it and we're willing to give it a chance. And if it doesn't work, we'll try something else. And I think that is the type of innovative mindset that companies need to have around DEI. It can't just be, we have this three-point plan, we're going to check the box and move on. We have to always be checking back. That's part of the evolution. Check back to see what's working, what's not, but also be willing to try something. Those companies that started with blinded resumes 15 years ago, that was novel. And they didn't know if it was going to work. And sometimes it didn't. But you got to be willing to use the resources at hand to make good decisions, but also to try some things out because we're talking about humans. So there's going to be that human element. And I most admire companies that are willing to try some things out. I do too. And so speaking of that human element and accountability and resources and putting all of that together, you know, one of the things that we've seen happen is the explosion of ERGs, employee resource groups, and they can be really successful and sometimes they may not live up to their potential. But one of the things that we hear a lot from the employees is they do a lot of work and these ERGs. Unfortunately, all companies do not, again, at least compensate, and I'm not necessarily just compensating in terms of financially, but just total compensation in terms of what employees get back from the organization for participating in this work. What are your thoughts about organizations that perhaps just use this labor from this group? Again, these group members don't get at least significant compensation back for the labor that they put into these ERGs. And again, how can organizations avoid that pitfall? So they absolutely should be compensated. Hard stop. It is work. Passion does not create more hours in the day. So yes, people might be passionate about whatever their ERG is, and they may really believe in the work, but that does not create more hours in the day that does not take things off of their plate in terms of their day job. And so it is inequitable to create a system where the people who are generally most negatively impacted by the lack of diversity, equity, and inclusion are expected to then fix the problem and not be compensated. Now, organizations with limited budgets, again, we understand. Let's get creative. 
So are there ways that you can make sure that this work is showing up on employee performance reviews as an elevated leadership position? Are there ways that you could use some spot bonuses and things of that nature that may be less constrained than having a line item in their salary, for example? Are there other ways that you can, to your point, Dr. Holmes, about total compensation to think about that? Are there boundaries? Also, employees should be tracking their hours that they're committing to these roles as a member of an ERG group or a leader of an ERG group. And maybe, you know, they volunteer the five hours a month, but once it goes beyond that, then you need more resources or you need to compensate them. And I've seen a lot of organizations move towards different compensation models, and it makes a world of difference. It doesn't lessen the passion people have for it. It actually helps them to feel like the work is really valued because their other roles are valued by the company and they're paid for it. Nobody is going to work for fun. And so even again, if we're passionate about this thing, you got to compensate people for it. Hard stop. I, I love that hard stop. And, and I love that. What was that phrase again? Passion doesn't create more hours in a day. I love that. Tweet that out. <laughs> Passion as I want to be. But you know what? When it's seven o'clock and it's time for me to put on my other responsibilities, there's not going to be magically more hours in the day because I'm passionate about this ERG group. Absolutely not. I love it. I love it. And so we're going to close us out. You've given us so much to think about and to implement. And so I'm going to close this out the way that you closed out each of your chapters. And so you asked all of the leaders, what would a DEI utopia look like for them? And so I'm going to ask you, Dr. Washington, what would a DEI utopia look like for you? Yes, I love this concept of workplace utopia. For me, workplace utopia is a, a organization or organizations where systems of bias and exclusion and conformity have been dismantled and replaced with organizational environments where individuals are valued for their strengths and the unique aspects they bring to each organization. And they all have an opportunity to thrive. So for me, it's all about creating a space where people can be their best selves and bring as much of themselves as they want to to the workplace. And they have a fair opportunity to thrive. To me, that is workplace utopia. And that basically sums up my definition of what DEI Workplace Utopia will be as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Washington, for joining me in the guest chair today to continue our conversation about corporate DEI initiatives. I encourage everyone to go out and buy Dr. Washington's insightful book, The Necessary Journey, Making Real Progress on Equity and Inclusion, and make sure you listen to her podcast with Gallup called The Cultural Competence. I wish you continued success with all of your future endeavors. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for listening to Diversity Matters. If you enjoyed our show and want to hear more, please subscribe to our show, post, talk about, and reshare our show with all of your friends and family. And leave us a favorable review and rating so that it will make it easier for others to find us wherever they listen to podcasts. We cannot do this important work or keep it going without you. So we really appreciate your support. We especially like to thank our episode sponsor, The PhD Project. Please support their mission by donating to The PhD Project. And if you're interested in a PhD in business, you can find more information on their website by visiting www.phdproject.org. If you or your company would like to sponsor a Diversity Matters episode, please visit the podcast section of our website at www 
whconsultingfirm.com for more information. Diversity Matters is produced by WH Consulting, a firm that provides a wide range of management consulting and professional services to individuals and organizations. Original music produced by Sincere Morton Mary. Until next time, peace and love.